and um, like walking down. I lived on Addison Road, just around the corner at the time. And uh, I didn't have anything to show them. Like the beers were awful. Everything was bad. And, and Harriet tells me now, she was like, I was really worried about you at that, in that moment. Matt Levinson here, and my guest today, Tofabom, makes what I reckon is probably the best beer in Sydney right now. This beer started with acacias, with dandelions, grevilleas, proteas. The brewery's even named after them. It's called Wildflower. It's unconventional, very individual. It's been name-checked by at least two of my past guests on this podcast, the painter Gemma Smith and uh, the food writer Lee Tran Lam. And needless to say, I've been really fascinated um, and I really wanted to know more about what makes Tofa tick. I think in, in some ways that'd be a good name for a podcast too. Um, that's what this podcast is really about. You know, make, finding out what people like Tofa. Uh, what what made them the people they are? What how they got to being doing the kind of individual and very special things they're doing now? Topher, thank you so much for saying yes to this. Thank you for for asking me. It's um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what what we talk about. We're here in this, you know, converted 1890s corrugated iron factory. You are surrounded by barrels. Um, whenever I come in here to pick up. Uh, you know, a case of beer. There's always great music playing. I think last time I was here, it was a Cesaria Evora record, which I absolutely loved. But I want to start this conversation a long way further back. You grew up in Dallas, Texas, right? I did, yeah. It's a long way away from here. <laughs> it's a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what life was like as a kid. Um, so I'm the youngest of six kids um, in Dallas, and pardon the uh, Merrickville moment that we're having right now. I know it doesn't come through so much on the microphone, but an airplane is crossing right over our serene setting, as it were. I mean, it's an moment. iconic <laughs> setting yeah, exactly. for Merrickville, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't get away without them. Um, yes, yeah, so I grew up as the youngest of six kids, uh, Irish Catholic family. Dad has a very German kind of background. Um, Mom, very outgoing, very... Um, very much a doer, uh, always at everything, involved in everyone's life. Um, the family was made up of, it still is very fortunate to have all of my siblings still um, here, uh, spread across the world, but still here and we're quite close. Um, five boys and one girl. Um, so my sister Emily was the fourth born um, and I was just the absolute caboose. Um, there's so many things to talk about growing up in Dallas. In the 90s, I mean, I'm going to give away my youth a little bit right now, and I won't tell you what year I was born, but I grew up in the 90s in, in, in Dallas. And um, I think in some ways, yeah, I'm not quite fair to my upbringing in a lot of ways. Like, I think um, I'm very much a product of it, and a lot of that's coming to light more and more as I consider it. And I'm kind of remembering things about um, growing up that I think I have been such a on a on a blazing path of doing what I want to do and being independent. I've sort of tried to separate myself from that, um, I suppose, from a, from a memory perspective. Um, but things are coming back for sure, which is ridiculous to say that I've forgotten things at my age. But um, it was quite a... Um, we didn't grow up like a lot of Americans at the time, I would say. Um, one, we were a very nuclear family, um, sit down for dinner, uh, every night, um, the food was a big, big part of my life. Still continues to be. My mom never made packet cookies or cakes. Everything from scratch. She grew um, a lot of the food that we ended up eating in a tiny little plot. You know, we lived right in the city of Dallas. It wasn't a, um, you know, you call it countryside outside of Dallas. We were right in town. Um, but you know, we had a little space, and Mom was very countercultural actively gardening, planting, you know, drought resistant grass, you know, buffalo grass out in front instead of, um, you know, more uh, chemical heavy or water heavy varietals of grass that might, you know, look better. Um, and the gardens is very much the same. They were of that style. So you, you drive around, you drive around our neighborhood and you'd see some pretty cookie cutter kind of gardens. And then ours was yucca and, and, you know, all kinds of different uh, succulents and crazy 
experimental varietals grass, but also along that then was, was a veggie patch. Um, and so we were fed a lot from that. And at least this is how my memory puts it. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure there was the odd um, Sam's Club run or Costco run uh, to feed a family of eight people. You've um, got to get the fundamentals out. Exactly. Don't you? The basics. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, no, no. I mean, it, it, at that time, and I think even still now, I mean, we talk about the standard American diet. I'm going into food because it's such a part of my life straight away. But this, this, this diet where I think about it, like when you go to a supermarket, um, generally the things that get stocked the freshest are on the outsides of the supermarket. Inside the aisles are the things that can, they're the slower movers. They're the more of the packets, um, more ingredients on the ingredient list. And they're packaged usually in, you know, in cardboard box or paper. Whereas on the outsides are your deli sections, your dairy and your veg. Um, the standard American, the standard American diet was very much focused on that centered piece. You know, what are the easy, easy to prepare kind of um, things? And you know, I, well, I remember going to the supermarket as a kid very much. Um, we were also part of a co-op of families that went to the farmers market once every you know fourth or fifth week, and then we'd drop that off to everyone's house, and there would be you know abundance. And that was that was not only for the quality of food and the eating of in seasonality, which Americans are really really bad at. Um, but but also for frugalness, and I, we we grew up very frugal. Um, I would say like thrifty. I would say is probably the the way. I mean, I remember my siblings like to tell me that this never happened to me because you know it happened to them because they were you know it was uh, tougher times when they were kids. Um, but mum would buy. Mum studied food science at university, and she would buy a gallon of milk, you know, about four liters of milk, um, of whole milk, and then split it across two four liter four liter jugs and then top up the rest with evaporated milk and water so you'd have two gallons now of you know essentially diluted milk just everything was stretched everything was spread and this isn't to, i had a very fortunate upbringing um very you know was very fortunate with schooling and, and all the opportunities that i've had in life um but they didn't they didn't come without a bit of um without a bit of grit and, and also like they didn't I suppose it was always with the understanding of, of that this comes at a cost. Yeah, and that awareness of the food and where it comes from, were, I mean, were your parents children of the 60s and 70s? Is that the kind of culture that they came up in or was it a little bit later? They were 50s. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly. I think mum is quite on around in her family um, because, you know, she was breastfeeding even my my eldest sibling and her mother my my grandmother um strongly recommended her against that you know it wasn't it mum wasn't you know sort of um you know hippie kind of um as we would describe it now but certainly like countercultural in a strong feminist way um and uh yeah i think i suppose there were influences across but i think mum mum was always really important like she she hated she was always reading nutritional panels from the beginning and I remember as a kid it's like the less ingredients that are on that the better it was always there and I think that maybe come from her seafood science but dad also dad's my dad grew up um his father and his sort of um family genealogy was in like accommodation hotels but um general stores and feed like stock feeds so dad grew up in southern Texas very German um, immigration movement in the 1850s has put a huge amount of Lutheran churches and Germanic kind of culture in southern Texas um, and dad's family's from that and they had these um, general stores in a little in a little town or general store in a little town and then his father started a mill and feed store south of Houston um, in a town called Angleton so right close to the to the um, Gulf of Mexico and dad grew up like shrimp farming like he would be in the summers he'd be you know, out, out in, you know, um, knee deep water, shrimp farming and always eating fresh fish and things like that. I don't think grandma, you know, his, his mom's in a, she's not a great cook or anything. And, and mom, mom's parents are definitely not good cooks. So it, I don't know where it came from, really. It does seem quite a little bit out of the blue, but I, I should probably talk to them about that. I love how these kind of things, and maybe this podcast will be a bit of a kickoff to some of that, but I love how some of these things just emerge fully formed as well. Mm. Um, you know, you've got that sort of real understanding and that real kind of um, being born into really thinking carefully about food, thinking about where it's from and yeah. even growing it yourself. And on your dad's side, it sounds like you've got the supply chain piece yeah. um, and the logistics yeah. um, and the selling of it and yeah. some of that stuff. Was there, I mean, was, I mean, beer is something I guess we know is 
really a big part of German culture. Is that something that came through? Yeah, it, as it, well? actually, it actually did. Um, I'm only learning more about this recently as well. A friend of mine who's a brewer at a, at a brewery in New Zealand um, did his training in German in Germany, a really classical German training. And he told me about there's a there's a there's actually a style of Pilsner um, from and forgive me for the German people, German speakers who are listening, but um, it's like a Burmischer, Burmischer pills um, from this area of what we would now probably call Bohemia. And the Germans call it Burmish, um, uh, which, you know, is probably modern day Czech Republic, but the Germans quite like to still think it's part of Germany. Um, is, is at least this is what my friend's saying. Um, and uh, my surname is, is from, so BAME is, is the pronunciation of my surname, at least through Galveston Island, you know, the Americanized version, but it would have been Boom, B with an, you know, umlaut over the O, and, and, and that's from this, from Bohemia, from this area is, is the people. And people from this area are quite, quite Czech now, we think about it, very self-sufficient, um, a lot of growing their own food, um, very stubborn. So all these things tick boxes for sure. Um, but my great grandfather um, was said to um, was said to be brewing beer during the prohibition downstairs in in the house, the family house um, that my grandfather was born in. But um, they he and, and a man called Mr. Spatzel. But the Spatzel Brewery is now known as Shiner Bach Brewery, which is a huge brewery in southern um, Texas. It's one of the top brands in in the U.S. Um, and a Bach beer is like a light. Uh, a light low ABV but darker color lager um, and Mr. Spatzel following Cosmo Spatzel following the prohibitions started this Spatzel brewery which is now China Bock beer so there's this like lore at least in the family that that yes my my great-grandfather was brewing whatever maybe became Shiner Bock I love that during the thing so it's that's like a small it's a small um you know, life goal to call to call up the you know this huge brewery and be like, hey, we need to do a collab. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, maybe. sure. Or at least yeah. I need a cut. Yeah, you know? exactly. Something. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Maybe some venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any anything. <laughs> Cash is good. <laughs> you were growing up in in Dallas, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, in a sec, we're going to talk about. I mean, you came out here to Australia to study astrophysics. Mm. Um, was that was that where you were heading when you were coming up at school? You know, what was it that grabbed you about that? about yeah. studying science and, and specifically that, you know, I mean, that's almost like a catchphrase, you yeah. know, it's not astrophysics. Yeah, no, um, yeah. How did you wind up heading down that path? Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't direct. Um, that's for sure. Uh, so I, I, I went through Catholic schooling my entire life. Um, so until university and that faith has informed quite a few things that I've done in my life and it's still a present part of, of my life. Um, and I remember going through high school and I was always quite good at math and science. Dad's an engineer. All of, most of my siblings are engineers or some sort of consultants. Um, very technical, I suppose, you know, kind of minds. And at least that's where we're geared, you know. Um, not the sportiest of families, if you will. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so I was always, those things quite, came quite easily to me, at least maths and science. Um, and this idea about belief, you know, in God and the opposition of that from science, at least from a, you know, um, an elementary view that these two things are at odds with each other, I think was probably one of the reasons that I was quite keen on doing it. I met uh, a current friend of mine um, um, many years ago, I would say in 2000, well, not many, too many years ago, but when I was sort of 16 or 17, um, I met one of the... Um, one of the astronomers at the Vatican Observatory, so at Castel Gandolfo, which is just outside of Rome. Um, and the Vatican, you know, still today does maintain like a pretty rigorous um, observatory of like high quality um, astrophysics, which is like strange for people to think about. But I mean, the Big Bang, bang Theory itself was, was developed by a Belgian priest. I mean, the, uh, this friend of mine um, who's, who's a priest uh, sort of got me started thinking about it. And um, much to my dismay, I've still never visited uh, him at Castel Gandalfa. We've been in Rome together. But um, when I finished high school, I actually wasn't very keen on going to university at all. I've had a view that people should go to university to learn, not to get a job. Um, you know, there are vocation schools to go get jobs. Um, uh, this is, and the arrogance I'm saying is because books came easy to me. So, like, I, of course, I wanted to learn, um, 
you know, I wanted to learn philosophy. I wanted to read everyone um, and do all of it. Um, and I didn't feel like I had anything to offer until you had understood the entire corpus of what had been written, everything before you. So it's like this huge burden. I was like, I can't take that on. That does sound like a pretty uh, pretty big prerequisite <laughs> load to bring into uni. Exactly. Well, anyway, so I, I, didn't, I didn't end up going to university in the States because um, saying this now seems like I'm some sort of savant or as if I knew what I was doing. Um, I probably just wasn't ready. I wanted to travel and wanted to, to, to not be engaged in a classroom. And people do spend a lot of time and money in classrooms in the US, maybe not maybe not learning and maybe they should take a gap year and, and burn 50K in a year traveling somewhere else rather than sitting in a classroom acting like they're studying. Um, but anyway, that's that would be a pretty lavish uh, year of travel actually on Look, a, for an 18-year-old. But Yeah, but, I, mean, um, I, I mean, I studied at university. I studied a science degree mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I loved that time. I, I've got a lot out of it. I really, it was really important for my growth as a human being. But, you know, the work I do now is completely, completely unrelated to that. Yeah. And so many people I've worked for who never went through that process are fantastic. You know, great at their jobs, yeah. great as leaders. And there aren't that many jobs that you deeply need that degree for yeah. vocationally. Completely agree. But it can be so great in developing, you know, like a way of thinking and yeah. a way of looking at the world and all that sort of thing. Well, that's – I mean, I, I came to I came to settle on physics because because it is so primary – you know, it, it, like you can, you are, I like to think of the degree or at least the coursework or progression um, as, a, as a way of building a toolbox of answering questions that you've never seen before. Everything that you're given are theorems or ideas or ways to make sense of things that don't make sense. Um, and so it's a problem solving degree, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and I studied, I ended up focusing a bit on astrophysics and radio astronomy because we're very good at it here in Australia, very good at big data analysis um, because I thought I was going to be a really good banker, you know, and make lots of money on, on quick transactions, you know, writing uh, complex algorithms that noticed, you know, der- derivative, I don't even know what I'm talking about there. But, you know, friends of mine who <laughs> matriculated through, um, they do that, you know. It's because, a classic path, yeah. you know, you do your PhD in this complex, yeah. hyper-technical area and then go into finance to make a lot of money. Um, So friends that did that and uh, I just didn't catch the bug, I suppose, um, which is a real shame because I'd be a lot more comfortable in life, but um, I don't think I would enjoy it as much. Uh, so that, I ended up studying that, and and really I came I came to university because of my now wife. Actually, I came to Australia because of my now wife. Not was the other, it was it was that, that travelled love. Well, so followed love first, and then made uh, made things make sense around that. So retrospectively, build up the argument about the big data and exactly, so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good strategy. <laughs> yeah. So you arrived in Sydney, and was it at Sydney? Sydney University. Sydney yeah. University. Yeah. So uh, to study astrophysics mm-hmm. and at some point beer started to come in, come into the mix. Yeah. Um, you started home brewing at some point. Yeah. You started working at the Flat Rock Brew Cafe in Narrenburn. Can you talk me through the kind of timing of this, the sequencing of it? <laughs> How it all really started to happen? I was, I was living in Lancove. I was living in the North Shore. I was actually working as a boarding master at um, a Sydney school um, in Lancove. And... Um, Along with the headmaster's son, who's still a, a friend, um, we started homebrewing in the headmaster's house um, at the time. Um, and this was 2011, I would say, 10 or 11. Um, one of my siblings, uh, Matt, was living in Seattle um, at the same time. And I was going to and from the States, you know, in summers or whatnot. Um, and I'd go through Seattle and one of his really good friends was a brewer. And it was the first time I had seen that. In the same way, you know, as the first time this, this friend who's an astrophysicist at the, at the observatory in Rome, I'd seen that as like, oh, this is like a career path. Like people do this. And not that I was looking for a career, but it was like, oh, this is, this is something that people do, you know, really. Um, because I had grown up in this kind of, I think most of the people who went to school with their families were, it's, Dallas is a very professional um, city, like lawyers and, and, and bankers and corporates, I suppose. Um, and, and dad fell into that outside of once he finished his like actual engineering work. 
Um, and so I didn't have a, a framework or I think examples of people that were doing things that they liked. You know, it was always people that were doing things they had to do to, you know, pay the mortgage or whatever it was. And so when I met this friend of my brother's who was a brewer, I was like, oh, that's cool. That, like you, you're doing what you want to do rather than what's required of you at the time. Um, and so I remember drinking some beer in Seattle and then coming back to Sydney and trying to find that same thing and was woefully, um, <laughs> uh, we were saddened. on a journey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, n everywhere else, I mean, yeah, it was a bit of a hotbed at the time, Seattle. So, and still is now for, for, for beer. You know, I remember, you know, in the nineties mm. and early two thousands, you know, we were a VB and old town, right? Like mm, mm. there wasn't too much other yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you maybe. I uh, still love old, I love to Coopers. Old. That was oh, kind I of love, our, like I've, I'm obsessed with Coopers. We but, make a Coopers inspired beer here actually. <laughs> nice. Um, but we started, we, we did have a big wave around mm. that time. It started to really mm. change here in Sydney. Yeah, so what ended up happening was I was home brewing and then just throughout university, it's like a cheap, it was a nice hobby to have because I was into, I was into lots of other things. Um, the one I like to talk about, which I never completed was bespoke shoemaking, visiting, like I've, was, I've been to England visiting, you know, cordwainers, which is the technical term for the person that actually makes an entire shoe. And still to this day, I'm like following on Instagram, you know, really bespoke uh, shoemakers um, in, in London. I, I love this idea of turning leather into functional thing. Um, shoes. The only issue with shoes is you can only make one pair at a time. So <laughs> with beer, I could kind of do this this, this process or this brewing on my own and then share it with other people. And that was something that I really ended up falling in love with. Um, and so I was brewing a lot during uni. Um, mates would come over and, you know, five bucks in the, in the jar and you go at it, you know, having big, big parties and um, draining all the kegs, as it were. And uh, I was also part of a group of expats here in Australia who were playing lacrosse at the time. So lacrosse is this, yeah, sort of um, American sport. And two friends from that ended up starting what's now Batch Brewery um, around the corner. And so I started with them um, as their sort of first hire and their first brewer in 2000. Uh, we opened in 2013 there. So um, pretty quickly what happened was uh, university was and, and study was a big kind of identity in my life because I was always good at books. So that was like easy and it was how people would, would um, you know, they would, Oh, October is a smart person. You know, yeah. that was like an identity thing. And I think I quite enjoyed meeting people and a world that that didn't matter. Um, and not that maybe it still does to me somewhere, if I have to be honest, but it wasn't important. Um, and um, university became um, still very important. And I finished and quite happy with how I did. But um, I was intending to continue to do my PhD and then, then that, that, that never happened. <laughs> I love that that all started, that next step started with the lacrosse team. I was, um, I was digging into the, uh, the internet record for you oh, and it's pretty hard to find any, any info from the Dallas era, but I did find a reference to a, uh, a varsity um, lacrosse <laughs> team from, I think it was about 2008 or yeah, so. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I yeah. love that that kind of, you know, that uh, over here, it's obviously not a mainstream sport mm. here in Australia, but that was the connection. Yeah. Um, how did that start to develop into, into what became Batch Brewing? Well, Andrew and Chris, um, Andrew Finner and Chris Sidwa were, I think they were just sitting around. I mean, it was just sitting around after, we used to play in the rocks right across from the Australian hotel. There's a little kind of sports center right there and there's a caged in um, sort of area. And so we'd always have beers at the Australian after. Great pub, love that pub. Um, and I think they, uh, Andrew worked in beer. He worked in um, marketing for Lion, and Chris was something in finance, I think. And so they decided they got it in their head that they would that they would do this. Young Henry's was only 2012, I believe. So it was just before, just after that. Um, so it was this like nascent time for beer. I mean, Batch was the first brewery in Merrickville, um, and always always a very unique kind of. It had its own thing. Mm from very early on mm. you came on board about six months before they That's right, really opened yeah. up right can yeah. you tell me about what i just built how, how'd that happen <laughs> just, well it was it was through the um it was through lacrosse and they just knew that i was keen and i'd given them some beers and and um you know i'd also because 
dad was an engineer and we didn't hire many trades growing up, you know, to fix things around the house. Like I know my way around a circular saw and a hammer and that's pretty handy when you're building a brewery with a budget of zero essentially. Um, and I mean, most things that you see around here, including these tables, like I built um, still now I can't, it's an, I have an issue with knowing just enough trades work to make it dangerous. Um, I probably shouldn't do some of the things that I end up doing, but I just came on with them, you know, once a week and wasn't, I don't even know if I was getting paid. I don't think I was. It was such a good time to watch uh, a business be born because I'm not, you know, my family's not necessarily entrepreneurial. I didn't have that, um, I'll say a mentor, but I just didn't have that framework in my head. Um, and I think through that, I definitely was becoming a bit more um, open to risk, at least in business. Yeah. And w- was this about the time that you um, let go of the PhD? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened was, I, so my wife and I were married in 2013 um, and, you know, visa reasons. No, I, I do love her and we're still married. Um, but uh, 2013, we were married and um, it became apparent that if I applied for my PhD as a resident, then they would pay me. Um, but if I applied for it as a uh, as an overseas student, then I would have to pay the government a bunch of money. So I was like, okay, why don't we just wait a year, get my residency, and then and then reapply? And so I had some mentors at the university who I you know maintained some relationship with. So once I finished my degree at the end of 2013 and 2014, was full time at that batch, but would do would would drop into um, the number of different various offsite offices that. Um, Sydney astronomers, astronomers connected to the city of Sydney have um, at the CSIRO up in um, Ride, I think it is, or, or in, um, in Redfern. And I'd go there and use the computers there to crunch big numbers and just kind of keep myself a little bit sharp uh, because I, this was the idea. It was like, I'm just going to do this beer thing for a little bit and then, um, and then I'm coming back. And yeah, cool, no worries. Um, and that was really great. I mean, it was a lot of fun to be kind of switching between those two things. Um, residency didn't come through so and we knew that it was going to happen but my wife needed to study a year overseas um, for her dual degree and so we moved to northern Spain and um, while I was granted residency there I wasn't able to work like we were able to live there for a year and and, um, stay Um, I wasn't able to work and so I continued that kind of um, uh, touch touch base with with the CSRO and, and Sydney Astronomy. Um, I mean, if any of the people that I worked with at, at Astronomy were hearing this, they'd be like, you didn't do anything. Um, you heard, like, we, we entertained you. Like, you know, that wasn't helpful at all. But um, I, I'm not sure if I was helpful at all for anything. But it was, trying, it was an attempt to stay smart. But in that, in that second year, I think it was really in Spain where we realized, okay, we have a chance to do something here. This is, you know, my wife and I together. We have a chance to... To maybe not do the canonical route, maybe go and do the thing that we would love first. And um, with support and kind of, uh, you know, like I said, we have these big families. My wife also comes from a big family here in Sydney. Um, we realized, okay, we have these kind of supports. Let's, 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 let's give it a go. And so in Spain, it was kind of the realization of like, I think I enjoy beer and the beer community and hospitality a bit more than... Um, than uh, studying. So. You know, it's so, it's so funny. I was about to say before, you know, there's so many scientists, super technical, I, like I studied geology and mm-hmm. physics at uni and so many of um, the, you know, the top scientists would get to a certain point in their career and either retire or sort of move into um, making wine, you know, because they understand soils, they're deeply technical minds. They really understand the spatial aspects of it and Mm. the process. Um, And it's not a, it's not a difficult switch. And I can see that like on some level, you've had the same experience, right? Does (laughs) it, does that feel, you know, right? I don't know. I'd like to think it was more intentional, but it's so not, (laughs) it's funny even talking about it in a, in a space like this, because it, you know, you start, maybe you connect things that you haven't before, or maybe they just happened and there was no connection. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how I feel about luck and fate really. Um, it's just, I think opportunities presented themselves and time and time again, I've been keen on jumping in really. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure. I mean, uh, I do know, so Brian Martin, who's a winemaker um, for Ravensworth Wines down in Mer- Merrin Bateman, is a really, really close friend, uh, incredibly technical mind, ex- 
exquisite musician, writer, never went to university, but just like a really incredible person. Um, one of his good friends is Brian Schmidt, the Nobel laureate, um, who is who's Cosmic who makes Pino. one. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, was, I remember when Brian Martin told me that, you know, and this is you know me as a as a lapsed physicist, I was like floored. I mean, I'm still I'm still waiting for the invite one day where we we go have a glass of wine together because that would be pretty cool. But you are right. I mean, I don't know. I, the reason I definitely end up studying astrophysics was because it moved me away from the hard math. Like I could never do quantum. Quantum is insanely difficult. Um, physics allowed me to kind of study philosophy as well. So I did a lot of, I ended up doing a lot of canonical philosophy in university as well as history and philosophy of science. So looking at the origins of science and the great thinkers um, and their lives and the circumstances which, you know, borne out the, the, the things that we now see as, you know, scientific laws like the Principia. Um, from Newton, you know, they, they are also of a time and a place, you know, so looking at it kind of historically um, as, as, as well as from the science. And, and I think um, physics allowed me that ability and especially the kind of stuff that I was interested in, like this cosmology stuff was a little more abstract. Um, and so maybe I have, I don't know, maybe I have always been interested in that things a little bit more abstract. I don't know. I also feel like I'm just a, just a big, um, just good enough to get by a lot of things and then you kind of um i don't know uh, fake it <laughs> i was on holidays last year in padua in um italy and yeah. you know um staying in a little airbnb in the square with the oh. beautiful you know um clock yeah. the, the galileo clock and yeah. just was absolutely captured by the deep long history of learning and, and education there. Did you go to the anatomical theatre? I, I did of course. Oh my god. How can you not? It's amazing. But tell me about that time you, you went to northern Spain yeah. with your wife. She was studying. Yeah. How tell me tell me more about that trip because that feels like a real a really important trip where you learnt a lot um, that you brought back. Yeah. Tell me about it. It was it was it was a really important trip and time for us. Um, a lot of people now, I'll take it in a different way first. A lot of people now talk about getting married, settling down, you know, and, and we have a lot of friends who, uh, in, in our world who would, you know, oh, we're not ready for that because, you know, I need to do this and this and this and this. And Bernadette, my wife and I have decided that we're just, that's not well, how we see it. Um, it. This isn't an ending of a part of our life. And so it was really important for us to travel and live um, overseas and you know this was just one year I mean people have spent lifetimes overseas and I mean I guess I kind of have as well I don't know I'm still very confused about where I would call my citizenship at this stage um, but uh, uh, we went over and I think it was actually one of the first times in my life that I didn't have a real day-to-day um, -day purpose like real focus on leisure we'd worked really hard We'd saved all of our, we saved a bunch of money and I mean, quite frankly, living in Northern Spain in a small town, Santander was pretty affordable. So we didn't need a bunch. For me, it was one of the first times where I didn't have this I say intense, but intensive sort of um, uh, task at hand to be pursuing or, you know, like I have an issue with reading books that are fiction because there's no learning necessarily happening with it. Like this, like pure pleasure is a really difficult thing for me to get through my head. And Spain was really great for that because that's that I was forced, I couldn't work. Um, and so I ended up starting a blog um, and I surfed a lot. Um, and I ended up writing the business plan for what is, well, what was a brewery called Paddock that was going to be on the South Coast in a farm, very agricultural. Um, that didn't work out for a number of reasons. So we ended up, um, it became what is now wildflower. Um, but it was an amazing year. I'm really focusing on, I was just able to cook and surf. I mean, I don't know. I just want to, I want to go back every time I think about it really. Um, I yeah, love that I'm, feeling. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not allocating this very well. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I completely hear what you're saying though, you know, as someone who's really driven and, and like wants to fill their time mm. that, uh, that time where you don't have that forward momentum can be incredibly liberating, mm. you know, if you allow yourself to get into it, to uh, change directions, yeah. to allow you the space to do that kind of bigger thinking that allows you to take, to find that new path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so I suppose it was like a sabbatical in some sense. Yeah. I don't know. You know what? I was going to ask you, like, what drew you back to Sydney? Mm. Um, like, was there a moment when, you know, you might have... Uh, 
been setting this up in northern Spain or yeah. was it always that you were stopping in there, you're coming back and you're making that business plan to kick off in Sydney or was there a moment where it could have gone the other way? It, it, it could have gone lots of ways and I'm not going to say it still can't. Um, as every day passes though, I realise how deeply in love I am with the city um, and I, I, I know I'm stuck um, in, in this kind of realisation, but also like maybe liberating but exciting way that it's like, okay, this is something that I do want for my life. Um, yeah, the, the brewery could have maybe been in the US, probably could have been in Spain, potentially um, could have been on the South Coast very, very easily. And uh, also regional New South Wales was like still some ideas because of how agriculturally focused we are. It is nice being there. Um, I, from a identity perspective of the brewery, I think it's really important that we are in the city um, now and, and how we kind of live that agricultural focused product within the city, I think is, a, is important for how we talk about things now. Um, but I, very fortunate to travel a lot with with my work um and it's it's about a week a week and a half where i start missing sydney now um it very much feels like home um the city and it's just radiant like i mean anyone who lives here knows what i mean but you fly in in the morning you know usually i usually try to catch the am flights if you're coming back and the sun's on the harbour and you're like, oh, like it, I'm home, you know, it's I was so at nice. Amaz- I was at an event this morning, um, right down on the harbour mm. in one of those just incredible huge buildings mm. that have, have, you know, seemingly sprouted in the last five years, mm. looking over the harbour and it was just glistening, oh. you know, sparkling, yeah. you know, so I completely hear what you're saying. It's so special. And it's just that, I mean, that's around every corner, but I also love, I mean, I hate and I love like <laughs> coming from a coming from a city that's you know you're you're known not by your suburb you're known by your highway intersections you know you, someone asked me where I'm from in Dallas I say I'm from 635 and the tollway those are two major roads you know freeways that's the cross section and that's how people talk about where they're from in Dallas is the intersection of highways or the closest shopping mall not kidding it's actually how it's done um, and so I've always been in love with how burrowed um, Sydney is and, and these, the city of villages obviously as it is but um, you know you can isolate someone's not, not their identity but you can isolate where they live and understand their coffee shop and their local pub and just from like a simple few words of you know, I'm in Glebe oh, okay you know this and that that is such an amazing part of Sydney and I'm actually so excited about all of the this is probably controversial all of the infrastructure work that is going on between the metro and the West Connects works because it is kind of I feel crunching Sydney a little bit into our own little spaces and we don't get out and spread ourselves as much as I think we we could and you know I mean we know how vast the city is and how culturally diverse it is and I mean I'm at a stage of my life where I'm starting a business and I have three very, very young kids. So I'm not getting out and about as much as a lot of friends are, but, um, I, you know, I grew up in a place where you could hop in a car and in 20 minutes, you could be 20 K's away. Um, and that is not as easy to do here. And I do think it, it, it it's a, it's a risk for the city. And so I'm, I'm like quite excited about these infrastructure projects to be able to, allow us to work in the city and maybe live in Western Sydney. Um, a lot of people do, and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but um, to allow for people from different walks of life who are, di- who are interested in different things, you know, not all the artists need to live in the inner West anymore, you know, when, when we can, or those people can, can, can move or all the finance people don't need to live in neutral Bay all the time, you know, like, yeah. um, so there's issues I think with the city, but at the same time, like the fact that it is so, you know, um, diverse and, you know, Melbourne, I enjoy going to, but, but I just, so there is something special about how geographically fucked we are in Sydney and it keeps people where we are. So it works both ways. In some yeah. ways, Sydney's a bit like, uh, those parts of England where they've got their own, <laughs> yeah, you know, very strong accent yeah. and you can barely sort of penetrate it. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're so different because they've yeah. been so separated. We're, yeah. we're a lot like that in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, we, we could talk about this all day and mm. literally I, I can. I work for a think tank that is kind of all about Sydney. Um, but I want to talk about the beer. Okay. And, you know, with with Wildflower, you've done something really, really interesting. Um, 
you know, most craft brewers ferment their beers using commercial yeast that they bought um, from overseas suppliers, typically, depending on which type of beer they want to make. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, you know, um, set and, and based on that. Mm-hmm. And I know that's part of the mix for you, but you went out and did something really different and, and pretty risky to start with going out looking for natural native yeasts that you could kickstart your, um, your brews with. What, what made you do that? Because that feels like if you're, you know, I guess you're building a new business, you want to build it on strong foundations. <laughs> you know, you, you started with a business plan, you're mm. clearly thinking about it commercially, mm. but you started with this really sort of unstable, risky base. Talk, talk to me about why you did that and how you went about doing it. I, I think a lot about it has to do with the fact that I am an outsider. Australians have a real cultural cringe when it comes to arts and culture, like they don't celebrate I think the tide's turning a little bit um but I never felt and tend to still feel a little bit now that they're they do feel quite cringy about watching Australian film um or um you know Australian shows I think is the easiest one to pick at um and you know our actors have to prove themselves overseas before they're like really big you know um at least in Australia, I mean, we can't we can't just have these homegrown heroes. I, I do think the tide is changing on that. I, I will say a little bit, but um, I've noticed it and like, or at least talked about it in different parts of the arts. Um, and I don't think of what I do as very artistic, to be honest. Um, I feel like a plumber um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, uh, a plumber and a, and a maintenance person. Um, but uh, I, when I came here, I mean, I've just told you about how obsessed I am with this city. Um, the we're sitting here next to Waddle, which is in bloom right now, and I can smell it throughout this entire conversation. And Waddle particularly, but a number of Australian um, flora has just always struck me as so beautiful. And I mean, potentially, I don't know, my mum was always into plants. I don't know, maybe it's, uh, never thought about that. Um, I was always quite struck by the uniqueness of the Australian flora. And so um, what I like to think is that the brewery was born of, a, of an idea of expressing the uniqueness of the microflora from from that flora. I had a friend um, in the U.S. Uh, in in Texas making beers uh, partially fermented using native yeast and bacteria from flowers. Um, and I mean, even the name wildflower is a is really a southern term for native flowers. Australians don't use it so much because um, we talk about natives rather than wildflowers. Um, but um, they were using, you know, wildflowers to start some of their ferments. And I was just struck by how you don't have to go to a supermarket supplier of, of um, yeast and bacteria to, to make these beers. And potentially this is how beer could have been made many, many years ago. And maybe throughout the course of time, we've lost something. We've lost a, a character or a, personality of the beer that that we don't see anymore and I think I was just interested in that in that process and in the product that would be made when we I mean not to get a little too airy-fairy but when we partner with mother nature and like give her the the settings for fermentation we set it up and then allow her to do what she will potentially there's a there's a there's a space there where we've prepared these conditions and the product itself is in a way novel or not being able to be expressed before because of a desire for control. Um, and I think, you know, maybe going back to things we talked about before, like with the science and the, and the, the technical brewing that I've pursued beforehand, had some sense of how to augment elements of the brewing process because it is quite an intensive process um, to to uh, predict or in some way augment the product you know at the end I can change the water profile at the end. and I think I just became infatuated with the idea that I could not do that I love I love yeah. that you were just telling me five minutes ago that you're Actually more of a plumber than an artist. <laughs> and, you know, and now you're telling me about this deeply creative process that you're going through and, and, um, and thinking through. You went out looking for those, um, you know, those, those um, native flowers, the mm-hmm. wildflowers. Mm-hmm. 
what, what kind of was that a was that a big journey? I mean, that feels like it's got the makings of a movie. But it's fun, yeah. Um, it my my in laws um, had had a property on the south coast at the time, and so um, and there was a lot of it was a lot of brushland, like a lot of um, diversity of of flora, and so it wasn't like a big um, escapade, you know, hiking through the through the national parks and things like that. Um, was very fortunate to be able to have good access to legal cuttings because um, <laughs> you're not you're not meant to take cuttings from a lot of places um, and yeah I mean it was I suppose you're leaving a little bit to the wind but at the same time like it, it's it's so it's it, you're right I mean it is there's an element of risk in what we do and and, 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 and in unpredictability and unpredictability whatever the word is there um, but at the same time uh, yeast is such a happy organism when you keep it alive and you, know, you see it with raw milk cheeses. I was listening to someone today talking about raw milk cheese. I mean, when, when, you, when you work within some, some pretty loose bounds and know what you're looking for, it's pretty safe um, to make. Uh, Were there any fails using, along the way? Oh my God, so many, so many, um, so many fails. And, and, and still now, I mean, there are things that don't work out. And I think I talk about this with someone else is things that like, these are fermentations that still now, you know, a culture that we've used at the brewery for three years. We had we had one culture up until 2021, and then we scrapped that, and we've we've started a different one um, for various reasons. Um, but we've worked there for a few years, and still now, it just will throw something every once in a while, and you're like, oh wait, like that's I've never seen that before, and that's not that's not its fault. Like it's our fault for not liking that flavor it's just expressing itself you yeah know? Like, but but at the same time you know we're here in this brewery there's bottles yeah uh, you know on the wall there's you know a fridge full of beer you've had a, like a, a certain amount of critical acclaim for your work and and success so in 2023 a fail is just like part of the journey and you're <laughs> yeah, comfortable yeah. with it but in 2016 uh, were there fails that you're like maybe this is just not going to work uh, straight away i mean with the first beer Oh, yeah, straight away. Um, I remember one day coming down here um, before. Look, so we we started brewing in sixteen, but we didn't release our first beers until sort of April seventeen. Opened the venue to June of seventeen. Um, I was coming down here with really good friends of ours, um, DJ and Harriet McCready, who have started in twenty nineteen. Started what's Mountain Culture Beer Company and like ubiquitous name, but. Um, DJ actually worked for me for a little bit. Um, we blended our first beers together here. He was in between jobs and we were just hanging out together. He's a friend. But I remember coming down and um, like walking down. I lived on Addison Road just around the corner at the time. And uh, I didn't have anything to show them. Like the beers were awful. Everything was bad. And, and Harriet tells me now, she was like, I was really worried about you at that, in that moment because I was just so... We didn't have, you know, we, we, st we st I mean, I still don't, like, my wife and I don't really have any assets necessarily. Like, we still very much live hand to mouth. Um, so it's not like this thing has been built. It's just that we had, you know, we, we still have nothing in a sense, but I had risked quite a bit and it wasn't necessarily going the way that I thought it would. And this is really early and I really felt that I'd messed up. Um, we didn't release our second blend of gold. Uh, because it developed a huge amount of sulfur in bottle. So this was literally our second release. I had to say to my business partner, like, we have to, like, we can't, we can't do this. It was not, it's not worth risking, you know, the future of people wondering whether releases from us are going to be drinkable or not. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's been so many, I mean, 2021 was probably the hardest, uh, was when you know, there was a exterior, pectinatus infection into, into the culture, which is why we had to scrap the first one. And we lost about nine months of brewing. Um, and because we had so much beer in bottle and in barrel, we were able to keep trading. So we had this reserve stock, you know, this is always what happens. It's not, it's not a, you know, our, our, our most common beer seen in the market, well, probably second most now, but is gold. And that gold takes two years to make from, from where to go. So even if we if we halt production for nine months, we still have things to do. So we were able to trade through that. But yeah, I don't I don't ever f <laughs> I don't know if I've ever slept well um, thinking about it. And the the idea with the brewery is to have enough barrel beer in barrel in this back stock so that we always have something to pull from. And I expect ten to fifteen percent of it to never make a bottle at least, um, and it can, can be more than that. 
you know, what you've done here with Wildflower, for me anyway, it really pushes the boundaries of what beer is, you know. Um, it's often, you know, when you're drinking it, it's got a nuanced flavour that is really different from any other. I mean, it's, not, it's certainly not in the land of IPAs and, <laughs> you know, and lagers and so on. It's, mm. it's a sophisticated, interesting um, drink. What was it? What is it that pushes you to create that? Because making something like that, there's there's not an obvious market for it. Mm. In a way, you have to create your market. You have to find the way into those markets. It's not a sure bet at all. I mean, we've talked about that already. Still now. What yeah. what keeps you going? I mean, in that moment, it sounds like in that moment, what kept you going was just that you had some buffer <laughs> and you were able to keep trading. Yeah. But in a longer term sense, what, what, what is the vision here and, mm. and what keeps you going and pushing the edge there? I, I think about this a lot because, because I have issues with the product that we make being like a very abusive, abused drug um, in the world um, and whether it is what I want to do with my life, whether it is, you, know, you, you have a chance to do something here, you know, work on something and whether you know, people like fermenting alcohol is, is the idea. I mean, we, we started a cheesery last year, or sorry, this year as well um, on site. And I'm noticing how much fulfillment I'm getting working with a fermented product that, that isn't alcoholic. Um, so I think about this a lot because this, 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 this toils me um, quite a bit. Uh, I know the brew was started on this idea of, of expression um, and, and a desire to make something that was truly from, from a place. Um, and, and for that place as well. Um, and definitely the brewery was started uh, for a sense of community. Um, we've always bottled beer in 750 ml bottles with the intention and the pursuit of people opening them and sharing them. You know, I've always wanted beer to be part of the, com- the conversation to have around the beer rather than about the beer. So there's this, there's this desire, at least from my perspective, to make the beer subtle enough that they don't need, they need not shout and jump up and down and you have to focus on them. But um, interesting enough and complex through that subtlety that if you did want to, it'll meet you there. You know, it'll go to that level if it's something that you want to break down. <sighs> Going forward, it's, it's I, I'm like, I'm not saying I'm at an impasse, but you know, it has been seven years. So it's that kind of, it's that kind of time to, to, to rewrite. We've, we've done and sort of, we've achieved a lot of things that I don't think we ever thought we would have and the the things that I'm finding value in now as part of my work have almost nothing to do with which restaurants are pouring them or best of lists or anything like that and so it's it's kind of interesting that maybe you would have started with these kind of you know ideas on awards or accolades or recognition and um you know those things are now a way are almost non-existent um uh, for me um, at all in terms of why I do um, what we do. Uh, so I'm, I think I'm still at a point of, of figuring that out, uh, to be honest. And, and so it's just like, I think, I don't know if this is something that a lot of other people go through is, is um, not necessarily an exhaustion, but of like, a, you wake up one day, and you're like, oh, I, I guess I did that. And you have to rewrite those goals with, with what it is that you have because, you know, we employ people here and we have a community here and it feeds my family so it's not something that I can just lose interest in and walk away from you know straight straight away I mean if it is what I wanted to do it's set up that way that we could you know we're not we're not beholden to um we've almost no debt whatsoever so we are quite free um to do what we want to do but um I mean yeah it's 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 difficult I mean at this stage Right now, we're focusing a lot of effort on the space that we're sitting in now and creating a space in Sydney that feels really homey um, in amongst uh, quite a bit of um, polished hospitality, uh, which which kind of dominates the city. Um, and whether or not people value that or not is, is up to them. I mean, um, that that's okay. Uh, we're very much not here to please everyone. Uh, you'll know that from the type of beer that we make. Um, but I, I, I almost think that at the time, yeah, we're just, it's like an ex- a desire to exist is to offer that antidote um, to what I suppose is um, a more commercial 
or viable um, business. But I, I think I'm definitely thinking about it a lot now and I don't have a straight answer for it. There's so many things. I mean, part of me would love to be able to be in business such that if my kids wanted to do it, then it was there. But the other part's like, no, that that's not, why would I want them to do that? This, this, is, this is my, this is something that I wanted to do. It's, it's nothing to do for that. I wouldn't want them to feel um, that they have to, Follow in their father's footsteps. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. And but I do think, at least in this stage, I mean, I think since having kids, and you know, my daughter Florence is six, the brewery is seven, so it's always been family's always been a part of. And this is a family brewery; it's owned by my brother-in-law and his wife, and me and my wife. Um, so it's a family business. Um, family's always been a part of what we do, and I do think at this stage, I wouldn't be able to leave what I'm doing because I feel quite proud that I'm offering my kids an option or at least an example of if there is something that they want to do that's outside of the norm, then, then they can and introducing them and going on holidays and being friends with um, like, like actual, like close friends with, with, with people that aren't running the canonical race. Um, uh, I feel maybe they'll value, maybe they'll resent me for it. I'm not sure, you know, um, I, because it didn't, it won't offer them the same things that their peers would have in terms of ski holidays or whatever the hell people value. Um, but there's a richness to life, isn't there? And a little bit, yeah. You know, there's a certain, you know, there's a there's a path that people can take that is a, you know, as you say, the canonical path, the mm. sort of path that's laid out. Mm. And, you know, in craft breweries, there's a pretty well-trodden path building it up and selling it off to a line Nathan or, a, you know, yeah. um, one of the big breweries and making that big exit. Mm. And, you know, I was thinking about Wildflower in that context and, you know, that's a, that's a fine tuning of product mm. down to a more and more polished product. And, you know, you're business is you know making cheese and you know making 200 liters of soy sauce which yeah, i hear yeah. is incredible and you know a batch of whiskey mm. made from you know uh, like beer. a batch yeah. of beer that didn't yeah. work out and you know it seems like you're pushing out in every direction yeah um I'm fortunate to have a, a semi-commercial uh option for a lot of hobbies <laughs> And is that, is that part of your thinking process, you know, like just experimenting with all yeah. this stuff? It is, it is. And I, I find a lot, I mean, I have a lot of joy in these other projects that we do, like the soy sauce or the whiskey or cider that we make this year. Or, um, yeah, potentially I need to say no a little bit more often because I do get drawn out um, quite a bit and, and want to put a lot of effort into, into a lot of different things. But, um, yeah, I don't know if I could... Uh, if I could do it any other way. Topher, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you three super quick questions. Mm -hmm. The first one, what's keeping you up at night? I meant to have this prepared because I've listened to your, <laughs> I listened to your podcasts uh, and think, what's keeping me up at night? I mean, mainly kids. Like Edward is 14 months old. He wakes up. Um, Walt, my my three and a half year old, weed in his bed last night. It's mainly kids. That's a really good. <laughs> that, that's a good answer. Um, what about um, who else I should be speaking to? Oh, there's so many people. Um, we're quite tied into. Uh, I, I mean, I'm quite tied into food, um, and so um, like Dougal Muffet, who's the baker um, for AP Bakery, is a really good friend, and he's a he's a fascinating guy. Um, Kenny, who he and his um, uh, family own um, Sung by Mabasa, an amazing Korean restaurant um, in Surrey Hills. And he is an amazing metal worker as well um, by day and then by night as uh, exquisite Korean food. Um, and then, I mean, well, and I'm just doing, this is like my Monday night catch up uh, group is um, Jeff Lucis, who's the head chef at Polly. Um, is a really good friend, a Canadian guy and just a really um, interesting dude and really, really focused on his food. Um, yeah, I mean, oh gosh. So that is, so that is three there. really good <laughs> suggestions. I'm going to need those uh, introductions after sure. this. Last question. What gives you hope? Oof, I'm probably the same thing that wakes me up at night um, is the kids. Uh, I mean, seeing the way that they're, I mean, my kids do an acknowledgement of country every day at their, at their, um, at their daycare center. And it's really important for my six-year-old daughter, um, you know, really like that acknowledgement. And she has and such an understanding of where she is 
and it, it's just amazing being you know from a place with that wasn't part of our conversation in Dallas and I think that certainly um, even for my wife's you know our generation it wasn't necessarily as in inbred as it is now so for, for our kids um, certainly, at least from certainly that perspective certainly wasn't for my generation yeah. coming up and I, I feel like a lot of us are on this journey of kind of starting to understand what country means mm. like what what does it actually mean for what we do like even the most shallow understanding yeah. but through to the potential of that much deeper understanding yeah. Yeah. I, I feel and that as well I try not to think too much about climate change and things like that because that makes me depressed <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah I mean they, they, yeah, they're, they're, just, they're just incredible um, the kids so they give me a lot of hope Tofa it's been so great to speak to you tonight um, where's the best place for people to, I mean, is the best thing for people to just come down here? Come down. Yeah. Come down, come to the brewery. We're in Marrickville. We're down the end of a dead end street. It looks a bit dodgy, but, um, trust me, it's, it's all right. <laughs> I'm down here, but I come, yeah. And, and taste the beers and, and, um, have a meal if you like. Something special here. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous interviews in the series, I really recommend you dig back in, uh, especially for this conversation, the wonderful painter Gemma Smith, who actually painted the uh, the label on um, the whiskey that Wildflower has just released, and Lee Tran Lam, who is a great food writer and broadcaster and just a real change maker in the space around diversity um, in the media coverage of food. She's, she's really changed the game there. And she also introduced me to Wildflower, which is also a <laughs> gift. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Topher. It has thank been you. absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. I might have a story for you.